Yep. Uh, when you get to 28 years, celebrating it at Giordano's in Indiana doesn't feel so bad. <laughs> it was, uh, was, we had a nice romantic day together in uh, Hampton Inn yesterday where we're staying. Uh, but it is amazing to think that Betty and I have reached 28 years already. Um, we, we're almost empty nesters. We have one more kid at home. We have five kids, three girls and two boys. And uh, they're all about, uh, just about all out of the house. But we have one that's going to be a senior next year in high school. And so once he's gone, uh, we are home free. <laughs> we get to enjoy. Uh, we get to reclaim our, our, our lives once again. Um, it has been really great to be with you this weekend. I, I really feel so bad that it's under these circumstances where, like I said, at the start of the retreat, we really can't really be with you, you know, because of the quarantine guideline for the surgery. Appreciate your prayers for me tomorrow uh, as I go for the uh, surgery at Skokie Hospital um, in the morning. And so would appreciate your prayers for that. I feel a little embarrassed because, um, you know, uh, I think Lydia arranged to give Betty and I these retreat t-shirts. And so I thought I was being really cool by wearing it yesterday, but I didn't get the memo you're supposed to wear today. So, so I don't have my retreat t-shirt on, uh, but it looks like all you guys do. But I thank you for that gift of that t-shirt as well. I know the youth are joining us this morning, and so they might not be aware of all the different messages that I've been speaking um, throughout the retreat and um, been inviting you to sort of chime in on Slido and to ask any questions that you have based on the message. And so even if we weren't able to share meals together and have any kind of hangout time together, um, to be able to respond to some of the ways that you're interacting with the messages. And one final question that I did see in Slido this morning was just asking about that story that I shared at the end of my message yesterday about um, toughing it out during the post-election violence in Kenya in 2007 in the sense that, you know, despite the risk of staying there, when the country was falling apart, that in, an a, in a sense it had a storybook ending. No one in our family was injured or killed or anything like that. And, um, you know, the question was, I think, a sincere one, and it's worth asking that uh, how would, you know, how would I uh, feel about it if some of us didn't make it out of there alive? And uh, would we have that same hopeful mindset of casting your bread on the waters if, if a tragedy did occur? And I... I do think that that's been sort of the, the theme of what we've been looking at Ecclesiastes is we live in a dangerous world and there are no guarantees. There was no guarantee of my family's safety when we made the decision to stay. But I think what the writer of Ecclesiastes as well as the rest of the Bible is saying, even in a world that is filled with danger and real risk and where there are no guaranteed outcomes, nevertheless, where we put our hope is not in the circumstances uh, or even the outcomes, but in the goodness of our God, who is our shepherd, who is our heavenly father, who cares for us and looks after us. And I think that was the heart of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they said, we know that God can deliver us from this fiery furnace that we're about to be tossed into. But then they said, but even if he does not, we will not bow to your statue, your image. And it's the same heart of Esther, Queen Esther, when she said, if I perish, I perish. But this is what God has asked of me to do in my generation. And so we are so thankful that everyone in our family was safe during that uh, turmoil in Kenya. Uh, and yet I would, I would hope 
that I could still offer that same testimony of God's faithfulness and the trust that he is in control of our lives, even if that was not the outcome and that there was harm actually done to people in our family or even myself. Um, I also want to say that I've changed up the message a bit. I plan to preach through Ecclesiastes, the whole retreat, but I don't know why just yesterday it was kind of burdening me and particularly this message I wanted to preach on community. Uh, and I think actually it's, a, it's actually a very good message that talks about the importance of friendship and relationships in our life and Ecclesiastes really brings that out in a very eloquent and very powerful way. But um, as we close out the retreat, this morning uh, for this Sunday worship service, I decided to kind of go in a different direction and preach on a different message about basically God's heart for sinners and how he feels toward us. And so that's what I want to do um, this morning, okay? Um, it is sort of a compilation of a series of messages that I did this past Advent season at my own church, uh, ICC, um, and so I'm going to take pieces of n a number of messages from there that were based on Dane Orland's book, uh, Gentle and Lowly. And I'll, I'll talk about that in just a little bit uh, in the introduction. Uh, but would you join me in a word of prayer as we um, turn to God's word? Father, we um, need the light uh, and the uh, guidance that your word provides because your word really is life. So we Pray, Father, that you would grant to us uh, a humble and teachable spirit to sit under the authority of that word and to have a heart that could believe in the truths that are found in your word, especially when it comes to understanding your heart. There are so many ways that we misunderstand you and cast a certain image of you, which is not who you really are. And so grant to us a heart of understanding through um, the illumining ministry of your word this morning, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, how many of you have seen the movie Minari? Have you guys seen that movie? Can you just raise a hand? I suspect very a number of you have. I, I watched it. Um, and it's this story of a Korean family and the struggles that they experienced being immigrants in rural Arkansas uh, in the 1980s. And, um, you know, if you are like a first-generation immigrant to this country, uh, it, it can hit you at some really deep places of emotional connection to see what this family was going through and to compare it with your own immigrant experience, I think. And it hit me pretty hard emotionally as well. The father's name is Jacob, and the mother's name is Monica. It's obvious they've adopted these Western names uh, after they immigrated. And together they work on this chicken farm in Arkansas. And they're basically sexing... Uh, baby chicks, where they separate the males from the female chicks. And I don't know, apparently Koreans were really good at this, and so they hired Koreans to do this in these farms. And Jacob, the father, tolerates this menial labor uh, in order to make enough money to pursue what his real dream is, which is to basically own a produce farm and become a produce supplier to the regional grocery stores in Arkansas. And while taking a break from this job of sexing uh, the chicks, um, he goes on a smoking break and he takes his young son David with him. And David is sitting there with his father during his break and he sees this chimney in the building next there and it's billowing the smoke out of the chimney. And the son 
David asks, uh, what's going on? What are they burning there? And Jacob, the father, replies that they're destroying the male chicks because their meat doesn't taste good and they can't lay eggs. And so he tells his son, male chicks are useless and so they're destroyed. And then he pauses for a minute and he decides to turn this into a life lesson for his son. And he says to his son this tragic words. He says, you and I must also be useful. You know, it's interesting. Many immigrants from Korea who had very prestigious jobs in Korea, some were professors or whatever else, some very high-level professions maybe, suddenly found themselves in very low-paying, menial jobs when they came to America, all because they couldn't speak English fluently. And as a result, many of these first-generation immigrants struggled with a sense of self-worth. They no longer found themselves to be useful to either their family or to society. America didn't need them. So in Jacob's search for meaning, for significance as a man, as a husband, as a father, this is the tragic wisdom that he had learned about life that he now wanted to pass down to his son. You have to be useful. You need to be useful. And much of the movie Minari captures his effort to be found useful, to prove his worth as a man. And in his desperate search for usefulness, he almost destroys the family that he loves and everything that he cherishes in pursuit of that dream. And I think that is the brutality of the world that we live in, that we are all born into, a world that demands that we prove our usefulness, our worth. And I would begin my message by simply asking you that question. How do you measure your sense of worth? But maybe a more important question might be, how do you think God measures your worth as a person? As I mentioned this past Advent season, I preached through this series on Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. And this is, I found to be, a really interesting book. Because while there are many books that are written about the works of Jesus, everything that Jesus did on our behalf, like going to the cross and dying and, and his resurrection and, and all of his miracles and all of those things, there are almost no books that actually talk about the heart of God, the heart of Jesus. And Gentle and Lowly is one of these rare books that helps us to understand the deepest heart of Jesus and how he feels toward us. Commenting on his target audience, Ortland writes, this book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator, those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It is for the incre that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For those of us who know God loves us but suspects we have deeply disappointed him, who have told others of the love of Christ, yet wonder if, as for us, he harbors mild resentment, who wonder if we have shipwrecked our lives beyond what, we can repair, what can be repaired, 
who are convinced we've permanently diminished our usefulness to the Lord. Can I start by saying this? I think it's one thing to know that Jesus died for us, but it's another thing to wonder, what is his heart toward me, isn't it? And before we go further, I need to make a clarification when I say, what is Jesus' heart toward us? Because in our modern way of thinking, when we use the word heart, we usually contrast it with the mind. So in other words, the way in our modern usage of the word heart, we think of it like this. With our mind, we think. And with our heart, we feel or we have emotions. Okay, That's the way the modern usage of the mind and the heart. But when the Bible talks about our heart or God's heart, that's not what it means. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it is referring to the core part of who you are as a person. And that includes not only your emotions or your feelings, but also your thoughts and your will, everything. In other words, when the Bible talks about our heart, it is talking about the center of who you are. It's the prime motivator that causes you to do the things you do and to make the choices you make in your life. In other words, our heart is at the very center of our personality. It makes us who we are. And so then I want to return in light of that understanding of it. Why isn't it simply good enough to know what God has done for us, his actions, that he gave us his son to die for our sins? Why is it that we need to concern ourselves with his state of mind, with his emotions, how he feels towards us? You know, some, I think, theologians and pastors would probably say, yeah, that's a bunch of psychobabble. That's a bunch of gobbledygook. You know, don't, why does it matter what God feels towards you? That's not important. It's what God did for you. Um, I would actually argue the opposite. Because any of us instinctively know that when it comes to the relationships that are most important to our lives, the heart is everything. It matters a whole lot, doesn't it? Think about two husbands and two anniversaries giving flowers to their wives. One husband tells his wife as he gives her the flowers, being married to you has been the greatest joy of my life. I know it's been 10 years, but my heart still still skips a beat every time I see you. That's what I told Betty yesterday. I didn't really, but now I think about it, I should have, okay? (laughs) I mean, any wife here, imagine if your husband said that to you. I still, my heart still skips a beat. Every time I see you. Husband number two shoves the flowers in his wife's face and says, well, here you go. Last year I forgot, and I didn't hear the end of it for three months. So anyway, here are your flowers this year. Happy anniversary. (laughs) Can I ask you, wives, (laughs) is it really just getting the flowers that matters? I doubt any woman would say that. That, well, as long as I got the flowers, that's all I care about. I think that second husband is in the doghouse for another year now, don't you? After giving her those flowers in that way. Because we all instinctively know the heart matters. The heart matters when it comes to relationships. But I would also say this. It is precisely this issue of God's heart toward us that plays on our deepest insecurities. Because yes, Jesus may have died on the cross for me, 
but there is also a part of us that deeply suspects that he is disappointed with me. Maybe he is even resentful of me for the countless times that I fail him. What does God feel toward me? Is he constantly upset at me? Is he always disappointed with me? Do my failures continually anger him? And I think our best guess at trying to answering this question is to understand human relationships and how we relate to one another and try to apply that to our relationship with God. And I think that is where we will go really wrong. Because what the Bible will tell us is that God does not treat us as we treat one another. Before we go on, I think we need to do a little bit more groundwork here to understand God's heart toward us. Because first we have to say something about what the Bible says is our heart toward God. I think there is a danger of reducing the story of sin to nothing more than the story of rule breaking. And I think there's a real danger because sometimes we learn that even as young kids at church from Sunday school days. We see God as the great rule maker. And he gave us all of these rules that we have to obey. And because we have failed to obey God's rules, he needs to punish us now. Framed in that way, it paints a picture of God that's very petty, doesn't it? Like he's a stickler, just waiting around for us to mess up so he can bust us. But that is not actually how the Bible tells the story of sin. It's primarily one of rule-breaking. What the Bible actually says is that God made us in his image to be created to be in a loving and trusting relationship with him and worshiping him and him alone. But what the Bible also says is that as image-bearers, called to reflect his character and serve his purposes, instead we have rejected God and turn our backs on him. And we have abandoned that call as his image bearers, and we have worshipped idols rather than the one true God. In other words, what the Bible says is we are the ones that didn't want the relationship. We walked away from him. It's not just we broke God's rules. We turned our backs on him and rejected him. In other words, the problem isn't so much that we couldn't meet God's high standards, it was instead that we wanted to live life on our own terms away from him. We rebelled against him. Look at how the Bible describes our state in God's own perspective in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taught taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. This is the heart of God saying, I loved you, but you rejected me. You turned away from me and didn't want a relationship with me. And what the Bible also says is that in our rejection of God, there is this spirit of self-justification and denial that we're even guilty of this. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 to 7 says, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is 
contemptible. Do you see the questions that are being asked of God? How have we shown contempt for your name? How have we defiled you? These are not the words of a person who feels sorry for what they've done, is it? It is a tone of defiance. It is a spirit of denial. I have nothing to apologize for, God. Prove to me that I've done these things that you're accusing me of. How dare you accuse me of these things? I have not done these things. It is built into our sinful condition is that we reject even our guilt in the things that we've done. It's like a couple going to marriage counseling and one spouse refuses to acknowledge that there is even a problem at all or to admit that they have done anything wrong. I don't need to be here with this counseling session. I am not the one who has the problem. Talk to them if you want to. But I am not the one who has the issue here. That sort of sets the stage then to ask this big question. How does God feel toward me? How does God respond to our rejection of him and our rebellion against him? Well, like I said, if we just take how we experience human relationships and apply it to our relationship with God, I think we know exactly how God ought to treat us and how he ought to react. Because if God was like us, I think the response would be pretty predictable. Because how do we treat the people who treat us badly? Our instinct is to respond in kind, tit for tat, right? Rejecting those who reject us. Maybe we do that out of a sense of wounded pride or to protect ourselves. But I think the most common reaction when someone rejects us is, is withdrawal. We don't want to be near the person who's hurt us, who's broken our trust. And so we assume that God must feel the same way toward us. But this is where God reveals he is so unlike us. Because after talking about God's unfaithfulness, about Israel's unfaithfulness to him, look at what God reveals about his own heart to Israel. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 7 to 9, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Did you catch that contrast that God made with people? He says, I am not a human being. And what we expect God to say after saying that I am not a human being is, I am not, I am God, I am not a man. The Holy One is in your midst. And then I think if we're really honest, we would think that the thing that God ought to say after that is, and therefore, I will come in wrath. I will come in judgment and justice. But instead, he says the exact opposite. He says, I am God, not man, the Holy One in your midst. And as a result of that knowledge, he says, I will not come in wrath, but in mercy. Because when you guys relate to each other, that's how you treat each other. You hurt me, I will hurt you. You reject me, I will reject you. But he says, but I am not like you. When you reject me, I don't treat you in that same way. Something in my heart burns out of longing. For you. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lonely, comments on the heart of God like this. 
the sins of those who belong to God, open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. Our hearts gasp to catch up with this. It is not how the world around us works. It is not how our own hearts work. But we bow in humble submission, letting God set the terms by which he will love us. I think a good way to understand what God is describing in his heart toward us when we sin against him is to picture a mother who sees her daughter in a hospital bed, ravaged by a disease that is killing her. And rather than recoiling in horror, that mother in her love for her child, that love is kindled even stronger wanting to do everything in her power to save her daughter. And I think that is what God is saying when he sees our brokenness and our waywardness, is he says, my fierce love for you is ignited. And what I want to do is rescue you from your sin that is destroying you and ravaging you. What an amazing statement, isn't it? It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness that kindles a fire in his heart to pursue us. Ortland isn't saying that God is more loving to us the worse we behave. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that when we are struggling in sin, rather than wanting to push us away, his reaction is to try to pull us closer to him out of a desire to help him. As Zechariah chapter 2 verse 8 says, for whatever touches you touches the apple of my eye. When we see someone behaving badly, we're usually so turned off that we pull away in disgust. But as crazy and as illogical as it sounds, God comes running to us with a heart of jealous love, longing to restore us to make us into the people that we're created to be. Now let me say something here. I suspect that, suspect that as much as you want to embrace this message, there's a part of you that wonders something like this. Okay, fair enough. But Pastor Steve, isn't that just a half-truth? Aren't you only telling us part of the story? Because when I read the Bible, there's actually a lot about God's judgment and wrath. Doesn't the Bible have a lot to say about that? And to that, I would acknowledge, yes, the Bible does talk about God's wrath and judgment. In fact, a big part of the Old Testament is God disciplining his people and even sending them into exile because they refuse to turn from their wicked ways. But this is what the Bible also says. Even in God's judgment and discipline, that judgment has to be understood in the bigger picture of his love for us. Because what the Bible says is his essential character, his natural posture toward us is not one of anger or judgment, but of compassion and mercy. In Exodus chapter 33, there's this interesting story where Moses begs God and says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. 
And in response, this is what God says in Exodus 33, verse 19. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I need you to see that connection. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will show you my goodness, my mercy, and my compassion. He says, if you want to see my glory, what I will reveal to you is my goodness toward you, that I am good toward you. And so when Moses hides in the cleft of that rock and the glory of God passes and then he turns to see the back of him, look at what Moses says in seeing God's glory in verses 6 to 7 of Exodus 34. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This becomes such an important revelation of God that the Old Testament prophets will quote this passage over and over again. But as Moses looks at the glory of God, what just comes out of his mouth, just spills forward is, what I see in God is a compassionate and gracious God. God will punish sin, but he takes no pleasure in it. He is slow to anger, but his heart is always quick toward compassion. And mercy. Again, Dane Ortland, slow to anger. God doesn't have his finger on the trigger. It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out his ire. Unlike us who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being, quote, provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. God is unswervingly just, but what is his disposition? What is he on the edge of his seat eager to do? If you catch me off guard, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain composure will likely be grouchiness. If you catch God off guard, what leaps out, of, out most freely is blessing. The impulse is to do good, is to do good. The desire to swallow us up Enjoy. I love that quote. In other words, what Ortland is saying is when somebody wrongs us, what pours out of us by instinct is usually anger or judgment. And it usually takes an extraordinary effort of the will for us to respond in love or mercy towards someone who has hurt us. We have to be, in other words, convinced into compassion. It is our instinct not to. When the Bible describes God, it says God is the exact opposite. It takes a lot to provoke his anger. His natural posture is mercy and love. 
Look at the math that God gave. He punishes to the third and fourth generation. But he says his love endures for thousands of generations. Isaiah 54, verse 7 to 8, For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. In other words, what God is saying is sin may seem to have the upper hand for a season, but God's pursuing love will eventually win the day, overtaking our sin with his mercy. You know, eventually judgment does come to Israel and the Babylonians did take them into exile. But even as the prophet Jeremiah stood in the ruins of that destroyed city, he could testify in Lamentations 3, 31 to 33, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He says, yes, we are being punished, but he does not do this with relish. He doesn't take any delight in this. He doesn't do this from his heart. He gets, God finds no joy in this. What he longs for is to show mercy to us and restore goodness to us. Jeremiah 32, verse 41, I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in the land with all my heart and soul. With grieving and pain, God punishes us. But he shows goodness and mercy wholeheartedly with great rejoicing. Remember what I said at the beginning of the message. The heart refers, refers to the essential nature of a person, what consumes that person's thoughts and emotions and drives them to their actions. And yes, God does punish and judge, but at the core of him is a heart of love and mercy. And even when he punishes, it is done out of a heart to restore us because of his love for us. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? That is God's heart toward the sinner. So it's not surprising that when you get to the New Testament and see Jesus, that he exhibits the same heart of compassion and mercy that the God of the Old Testament does. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 5, 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. And finally, Luke chapter 7, verse 12 to 13. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. When I read these descriptions of Jesus, it makes me think like this, you know. One aspect of a mature person, of a mature, well-ordered heart, is that we know how to control our emotions. And when we think about immature people, we tend to think about them who have no control over their emotions, whether it's their anxieties and worries or their anger or just their joy, you know. 
immature people we think are the people whose emotions are chaotic messes, right? But what I want to say is this. I think there's also an immaturity when we are stunted in our emotions and cannot actually feel the things that we ought to feel in a given situation. And I think that's very true in many Asian contexts is we may not sit there and become emotional messes, but the truth is there's almost like something dead inside us when we cannot feel what we rightfully ought to feel in a given situation. That also is spiritual maturity, to feel the right things at the right times. And I think Jesus did not have that problem. It's remarkable how often the Gospels record the heart of Jesus breaking in certain moments as he is filled with compassion and mercy toward us in situations when he sees our pain and brokenness. The religious leaders were scandalized by the kind of people that Jesus hung out with. Matthew 11, verse 19, it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Notice the specific accusation that is being made against Jesus here. What they were accusing him of is making friends with these sinners. I think for these religious leaders, their logic was like this. It's totally understandable, and it's fine if you as a rabbi want to minister to people like this, these prostitutes and tax collectors and other sinners. That's totally okay if you are just there to minister to them. But they were scandalized by the fact that he actually became friends with them. By doing so, he was crossing a line. Ortland writes, it is not his disciples, but his antagonists who most clearly perceived who Jesus is. Though the crowds call him the friend of sinners as an indictment, the label is one of unspeakable comfort for those who know themselves to be sinners. That Jesus is friend to sinners is only contemptible for those who feel themselves not to be in that category. What does it mean that Christ is a friend to sinners? At the very least, it means that he enjoys spending time with them. It also means that they feel welcome and comfortable around them. When they called Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners, I think the label was meant in the truest sense uh, that these people that were hated by the rest of society were actually considered Jesus' friends. In other words, when Jesus shows up at a party, he doesn't sit there with his arms folded, quietly judging everyone at that party. He doesn't look around and think, wow, this is a lot of house for one family. And he doesn't look and say, boy, your kids are acting pretty disrespectfully. Should have raised them better. And he doesn't look at your wife and say, boy, she's got a lot of makeup on and got a lot of jewelry on, doesn't she? I think the other religious leaders probably would do that if they were invited to that party. But what the gospel suggests is that Jesus didn't act like that when he went to one of these parties. When he showed up at a party, I think Jesus genuinely enjoyed himself. I love this picture. <laughs> I don't know if this thing actually happened, but this is kind of how I pictured Jesus acted when he went to somebody's house. He would pick up your kids and play with them. And he would not sit there judging everyone, 
but he genuinely enjoyed the company of sinners and enjoyed spending time with them. I'll be honest with you as I wrap up my message now. I think of all of the reflections that I did during that, this last Advent season, this is one of the ones that ministered to me the most deeply because I feel a bit, in, bit embarrassed to admit this as a pastor, but the truth is I never thought about my relationship with Jesus as a friendship. I just never thought of it in those terms. My relationship with Jesus always felt so much more transactional. And it never really occurred to me that Jesus could actually enjoy my company or want to actually spend time with me and actually really wanted to know what was on my heart, that he actually enjoys spending time with me and being with me. Here's also another truth I'll admit to is that I think just not just because of my life as a pastor, but I think it's just how I'm wired is that it feels like so much of my life is about a one-way stream me ministering to other people and so whenever I meet with people it's always me sitting at a restaurant or sitting in my office hearing their problems and trying to help them and the truth is if I'm really honest I'm much more reluctant to share with somebody what I'm struggling with and what my problems are and to pour out my heart to somebody if I'm really even honest about why that is the truth is it's because I don't think anyone else is really interested in that why would someone want to sit down for an hour and listen to my problems and want to listen to what I'm going through. But here's the thing. I do have a group of friends in my life that actually care for me in that way. And I've been doing life with these guys for decades now, since some of them since high school days. And you might even know some of them if you see this picture. One of them is actually my biological brother, but I consider him one of my best friends. Um... We have been through everything together, through all of our seasons of life. We stood at each other's weddings, was there for the birth of one another's kids. We were there when some of our parents passed away and grieved with them. And in 2004, I went to start my missionary work in Kenya. And in that first year of life in Kenya, I was so deeply lonely and so deeply homesick and prior to leaving for missionary work in Kenya we got together once a year uh, actually more than once a year and we would just f spend a week together and we would read books together we would pray for each other share for share with each other what's going on in our lives and this is the depth of that friendship is that uh, when I moved to Kenya and I shared how much of a hard time I was having out there. They all bought a plane ticket to Africa. And they came to Kenya. This is where that picture is taken. And they came to Kenya. And they spent a week with me in Kenya to comfort me and to help me through that time. And I can't even tell you how much that meant to me, that they would give up a week of their lives and leave their families and spend a week with me. A few years ago, one of them, Seth, who used to be in Ann Arbor, moved to start his missionary work in Hong Kong. And so this is what we did. We all bought a plane ticket to Hong Kong, and we went to Hong Kong to be with him, and to see the work that he's doing out there, and to encourage him. You know, uh, our last year's meeting was in Austin, Texas. 
And during that meeting, I shared some really difficult things that I was going through, a really painful season of my life. And after that Austin trip, one of those friends really reached out to me. Uh, actually, all of them did in their own way, but one of them in a particular way uh, just went way beyond to do, he did certain things to try to help me that just blew me away. You know, it's crazy. Like, I was telling him how one of the most influential people in my life, the authors that have helped me so much, uh, was this guy named Philip Yancey, you know, and how much his books had helped me. And so he, he, he went through these crazy extent to get me connected with Philip Yancey. <laughs> so he's saying, maybe with Philip Yancey can help you. And, and, and it's just, just pouring this love on me. But here was the thing about it was uh, I wasn't surprised that he did that for me because that's what friendship is about, isn't it? That's what friends do for each other. You're there for one another in your darkest moments and you care for each other enough to sacrifice in whatever that person needs. And I think what the Gospels tell us is that this is how God feels toward us. This is the heart of Jesus for you. Yes, he died on the cross for your sins. But maybe something that we need to hear today that's just as important is he doesn't resent you. He doesn't keep you at arm's length. He's not always brewing with a certain level of disappointment or anger toward you. But his fundamental posture toward you is one of love, one of compassion, one of mercy. He longs to spend time with you and to hear what is on your heart. That singular truth in these last several months has really transformed my prayer life to think that God actually wants to hear the things that are burdening my heart. Let's pray. As we uh, close out our retreat this weekend, I just this is the thought that I just want to leave you with as you return home and get back to your busy lives. Because in my years of doing pastoral counseling, I've come to realize how much of a struggle this is for so many Christians who've grown up in the church and wrestle with this fundamental question. How does God feel toward me? Yes, we know what he did for us. We know his actions. We know that God so loved us that he gave us his son and we know that that son came to die on a cross and we know that he did all of this. But I think what really haunts us at night is the deeper question, yeah, but how does he really feel about me, you know? Especially when I disappoint him. When especially when he looks at me and my failures and all the ways that I have failed myself. As I shared at the beginning in that illustration of that movie, Minari, the father Jacob says, you and I, we have to be useful. Because that's what society's message is to us. If you're not useful to somebody, then what good are you? What good are you? Why do you even exist if you're not going to be useful to someone? And I think the gospel speaks a rather different message. Your value is not found in your usefulness, but in the fact that God loves you and cares for you. And my hope is that as you go home this weekend, that would be a lingering thought that would strengthen your relationship 
with God, it would strengthen your prayer life, is that when you think about coming to God in a heart of repentance for the things that you've done, when you think about coming to Him in your moments of need and desperation, or your moments of doubt and frustration, my sincere hope is that what you would picture on the other side of that conversation is not of, not of a God who is brewing in resentment or anger toward you or frustration or disappointment, but a God who smiles and says, man, I just love hearing what's on your heart and I love spending time with you and I care about you more than you could ever understand and it is in that heart toward you that I act on your behalf. And so let me just close this in a word of prayer, and I think our worship team will close this in some uh, time of closing worship. But let's come before God in a word of prayer. God, um, by faith, I pray that we would come to comprehend how deep and wide and vast is your love for us. How much you long for us even when we are pushing you away and don't want anything to do with you. God, I pray that all of those insecurities that so often plague us about those ways in which we worry that you are so disappointed in us would melt away behind this overwhelming body of Scripture that tells us how much you want to draw near to us and care for us in our moment of need even when we fail, even when we struggle, even when we doubt. Your faithful love is always there pursuing us. Your jealous love is always chasing after us. Grant to us the heart of faith to truly believe that that's who you are. We pray these things in Christ's name.